love divine. So love divine, all loves excelling. Uh, does anybody know who wrote that particular hymn? There are a couple of people that are always good guesses if you are thinking about who wrote a hymn. So this particular one is written by Charles Wesley. Oh, I didn't hear you. Okay, good. Well, he's usually one of the best ones to guess because he wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of hymns. So the mathematical probabilities are really working for you in that one. But I'm sure that was your that was your erudite specific knowledge coming through for us. But I want you to keep in mind this idea of love divine, all loves excelling, because it is the the backdrop for the letter that we're going to be looking at tonight. So that particular version is written by a um, composer in the UK named Howard Goodall, uh, and it is uh, worth your time to go watch the YouTube of that, the front part that I wasn't showing, because he talks about how God basically gave him this new tune and setting in a really miraculous way. So it's pretty cool. So let me go ahead and open us in a word of prayer and we will jump right in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this evening and this time. Lord, we pray that as we all come from having days full of all different kinds of things, that you would help us to be present in this moment, to listen to what you might want to speak into our hearts through Lewis's words in this letter. Lord, we pray that you would use this time to draw us more and more into the things of your kingdom, for we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are uh, looking tonight into letter 18, uh, which is another, we just have several really important ones in a row, uh, which is a lot of fun. And it's very appropriate for Lent because last week, you might remember, we talked a little bit about the seven deadly sins, something really out of fashion these days. Uh, So we're continuing in that vein with another area of sin. So we will uh, get to that in a minute. But let's begin with our verse saying together, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on... Yes, that was a test. That was a test to see if you had it memorized. And you failed. All right, we're going to start again at stand, therefore, and see if we can redeem ourselves. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, 
having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And again, this is a verse that I would commend to your contemplation, particularly if you notice any elements of panic or fear in our culture, possibly at the moment. Um, This might be a good thing to remember. So... Uh, Why are we studying this? Lessons on understanding the battle that we are in, that this is not a walk in the park, much as we like to think that sometimes, um, that there is a battle going on and we have an enemy. Learning to think Christianly, uh, both parts of that, learning to think. We live in a culture that is not wild about the idea of thinking. Um, And so we're trying to lean into that idea and also the idea of what it means to think in a distinctively Christian way, to look at things through the lens of the kingdom of God. And then thirdly, lessons on the psychology of temptation, and then habits to cultivate that deepen faith in Christ, and then living a boldly Christian life, a life that matters for the kingdom of God, a life where there's joy and purpose and not just going through the motions. So, again, the importance of habits, this is particularly appropriate during Lent. This whole idea that we talked about um, a couple of weeks back at great length, that part of what Satan wants to do is to keep us in our head, if you will, all the time, considering things that we might do or thinking charitable thoughts about things that we might do. Wouldn't it be so nice if we did that? But then we don't actually ever do anything. It just all stays in our head. So this idea of moving from the realm of the mind into actually putting into practice and habits um, the things that we know that God calls us to is profoundly important. So just to review some of these past letters, um, the advice in all of these is good advice all the time, I think, for all of us. Being aware of your spiritual trajectory takes stock on a regular basis. And this is one of the beauties of Anglicanism. I promise not to go on a long rabbit trail about this. But uh, part of observing a liturgical year is we have two seasons of self-examination and reflection every year that are given to us by the church. We have the four weeks of Advent And then we have the 40 days of Lent every year. And that is a time that we are supposed to be thinking about our trajectory. What is the direction of our life? Are we growing closer to God and following Jesus more closely and with more fruit? Or are we drifting away? And so that taking stock is unbelievably important. The second thing, when you experience dim uneasiness, pray that God would open your eyes and lead you to repentance. We need to pay attention to those kinds of things. And when we experience reluctance to enter God's presence um, because of the fact that Satan wants to convince us that we are so bad and we screwed up so badly that God doesn't want to have anything to do with us and he wants to keep us away from him, 
we need to remember that that is a lie and that Jesus himself chose the parable of the prodigal son to express his attitude toward us when we are seeking forgiveness. Um, Invest in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy and avoid isolation. And then truths about spiritual warfare. Be aware of the power of nothing as used by the devil. How easy it is to just waste away. Not going to sing Margaritaville, but um, yeah, we can we can waste away, just wasting our time, not being engaged in the life that God has put in front of us, but just being a sideline spectator on life. And the second thing is to remember that Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning than he is on trying to tempt us to do something like really spectacularly wicked. So that is important to remember as well. Letter 13, this is sort of the same theme. Um, as soon as you become aware that you have strayed, repent, which means literally turn around and come back to the Lord. And then embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. We've talked about this before, but this is an area that used to be the province of the church and the people of God. And we have just let go of it. And our theology of beauty is woefully weak. And that's something that we desperately need to recover because it is part of the way that God designed and wired us to relate to him and his kingdom. Cultivate those pleasures and gifts that are part of God's design for you. When I run, I can feel his pleasure. We've been talking a lot about that in spiritual gifts uh, because we just had a class about that this past weekend. And one of the marks of whether you're using the gifts that God has given you in the way that God wants you to is that you should be experiencing joy when you use your gifts. It shouldn't be like, oh, I have to go serve. That is not what God calls us to. Um, We should be experiencing joy in that. And then fourthly, avoid seeking after worldly trends and fashions at the expense of what you truly love. Pretending to like things just because they're fashionable instead of because they're what you actually like. Um, And then be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance rather than wallowing in self-absorption. And I've gone on and on about this, but our culture loves to wallow. Um, There is so much wallowing and self-absorption. If you want to just have some fun with that, should you get bored, um, just Google personal blogs and then just read some. And you will see there's a lot of wallowing and self-absorption. There's also some really good stuff, but there's a lot of wallowing and self-absorption. God wants us, remember the letter on humility, to be thinking about God and others far more than we are thinking about ourselves. Um, Truths about spiritual warfare to remember always that God loves you enormously as an individual. He made you and he designed you. And the more that you lean into your relationship with God, the more you will truly become your authentic self. Practice daily and hourly dependence on God not getting up in the morning and then sort of forgetting that you belong to God all day long until you come back home and you see your scripture verse on the wall and you're like, oh, wait, 
And you think I've just missed, I lived the day in the wrong kingdom. So we need to practice that dependence. Practice is a big word like cultivate. And if you who took piano like I did when you were a child, you know it means self-discipline, making yourself do things that you don't want to do, giving up things that you might rather be doing in order to practice. And then, oh, here we have both of them together. Cultivate and practice true humility, a radical focus on God and others rather than yourself. And this has always been radical, but in a narcissistic culture, it is even more radical. People will be shocked that you're actually interested in them. I mean, it is. it doesn't seem like that should be shocking, but it really is. And it kind of reminds me of like the disease of our culture. There was this country song, it's probably 15 years ago now, it was called Want to Talk About Me? <laughs> and um, there's, we live, that's where we are. That's where most folks are. And so um, we can give them the opportunity to do that by being interested in them, um, to be thinking about them instead of ourselves. Avoid narcissism and wallowing again. Um, practice joyful celebration of wonder in others, in nature, in life that leads to gratitude. This is one of the key things that I think if your spiritual life feels like it's on life support, recultivating your sense of wonder is one of the most important things you can do. Because when you begin to get that and you see the wonder and the beauty that is just all around us, it will fire your soul and make you um, come out of that malaise. Um, and directly related to that is cultivating a high appreciation of the doctrine of creation. To think about God as the artist that has made all of these things, that has given us this profligate, unnecessary beauty that is all around, from the small, tiny things to the big things like sunsets. So it could be just the beauty of that perfect little stamen with the pollen on the end of it in the middle of a camellia flower, or it could be the sunset, but the design in each one of those things ought to turn our hearts toward praise. Consciously reject tortured fear and stupid confidence as states of mind, not that that might be apt at this particular moment, Um, and then attend to two things only, eternity and the present. This whole letter was about living your life that you have been given in the moment that you have been given. Not thinking all the time about the future and sort of getting through your life to try to get to this place in the future. Also not dwelling in the past and thinking, oh, I think you can only get back to when it was like that. Then everything would be great. And when we do that, we miss the gift of the present. And Jesus is really big on this, which means we should be really big on this. The centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most important teaching, is all about this living in the moment, living in the day. So proactively live in the present, because that is the only place where freedom and actuality, really experiencing what is in front of you, that's where it is in the present cultivate gratitude and love 
and be wary of fear, avarice, lust, and unhealthy ambition. Those are some of the seven deadly sins. There they are again. And then fifthly, work hard for the good of posterity, but trust God for the results and dwell in the moment with patience and or gratitude. We sometimes start to get a hold of that, and we work hard, but the idea of trusting God for the results is like, well, he needs my help. You know, I need to do all this because if I don't do that, it's not going to work. And there may be an element of truth in that sometimes, but most of the time it is because we think that we're the ones in charge. And we think if we don't work ourselves to the bone, God's will and eternal purposes are going to be frustrated and will all be because we didn't finish that document we were working on. And um, that is, uh, again, an over-focus on yourself uh, that if you focus on creation, part of what that does, it helps put you in context. Um, another thing that is so important here is to pray for virtues to meet what challenges may lie ahead. You may know that there are virtues out there, just like the seven deadly sins, are also the classical virtues that we don't hear much about either. And then this last one, um, this is such a simple thing, but embrace natural happiness as a good thing. The feeling of the warmth on a day like today when it's been not such great weather before, that feeling of the warmth, just the angle of the sunlight, how good the potato chip was that you ate at lunch, all of those little things. <laughs> Remember, Screwtape says at the end of that letter, but after all, why should the creature be happy? And so part of what annoys the devil is for you to be happy to find joy in these little things. So, letter 16, this is the one about church. Uh, we live in an age where you very often will meet people who say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, but I don't go to church. And as we said before, until very, very recent times, that would have been a statement that would have landed you in an asylum, probably. Because the thing is so linked to the idea of following Jesus is not an individual Marlboro Man, Lone Ranger sort of thing. It is being part of the body. So you can't be amputated off from the body. So that's something that is so important. Cultivating humility and a teachable spirit while seeking to build New Testament community. Again, hugely important. Part of the problem for many of us is that we think we know how everything in the church ought to be, and we're gonna we're gonna get in there and help those people. Um, and we may be we may have a really good motivation, um, but that is not what the scriptures instruct us to do. They instruct us to pray for our leaders. Thirdly, seek after the whole counsel of God with a high view of scripture. And again, this is one of the things I love in the Anglican tradition and some of the other liturgical churches is the lectionary makes us go through scripture. And I was just talking with someone today and he was talking about the fact that much as he loves where he's going to church, he's a little concerned that they just preach on feel-good passages all the time and they don't deal with some of the things that are harder. And that is one of the blessings about being somewhere where you're going through all of Scripture. Um, fourthly, encourage clergy leadership that 
weds the proclamation of true biblical belief and Christian love. Um, again, that's that whole continuum of truth and love. Um, so often we're at one end or the other, all truth, and we're mean and legalistic and judgmental, or we're all love, and there's no scripture, there's kind of anything goes, and that is not helpful either. But what we want to do is be in the middle where we are speaking the truth in love. Um, then the whole idea of holding fast to truth, the things that are the core doctrines of the faith, the things that are in the Apostles' Creed. Um, if you didn't hear John Dixon's talk on the Apostles' Creed, please do yourself a favor and go on the St. Philip's website and listen to it. It is one of the most brilliant and encouraging things I've heard in ages. But that's the essentials right there. Um, but in everything else, um, which are the things that are called adiaphora by clergy people, um, this, is, this is a great way of thinking of it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, charity. And then letter 17 from last week, practice self-examinations with respect to the seven deadly sins. And we talked about how for all of Christian history, really until about 100 years ago, everybody that had any contact with the Christian faith could tell you what the seven deadly sins were. And they also practiced self-examination where they looked for evidence of those sins in their lives. And I'm not going to like put y'all on the spot by unplugging this again <laughs> and asking you to name the seven deadly sins. And Linda's not going to unplug it either. Um, but... It is important that we look at these things because the reason that these are part of the heritage of the church is because these are the things where people stumble. And so we need uh, to practice self-examination. The second thing we need to practice is kindness and self-forgetfulness, especially toward those serving you. And we live, again, in a time where we're so, it's all about me that we, if somebody doesn't give us what we want when we want it, we just go off on them. And you, know, you see it in the coffee shop, you see it in the grocery store, you see it in restaurants. Um, it's just really unfortunate. And the whole idea of thinking about, well, what's it like for the person on the other side there who's working in the restaurant that doesn't have enough staff and is running around trying to do their job, what might happen if you showed them some compassion instead of screaming at them? So that's important. Keep fleshly appetites in check and do not pursue them as an end in themselves. And we talked about this with gluttony that we, we tend to misdefine gluttony. We think gluttony means overeating, grossly overeating. But in fact, what it means is overindulgence in any kind of fleshly appetite. And we talked about last week how one of the things that is disturbing uh, in our culture today is that many of these things that were appetites have now, um, they used to be things that were used in service to fellowship, for example. So you would want to have a good meal uh, so that you could be with your friends and talk with each other and share about your lives together. Or you might want to go to the pub and have a beer 
or a glass of wine and talk with your friend and relax and share about what's going on in your lives. But now we have uh, situations where food is almost worshipped. It's just, it's very interesting. And there's a whole new, I've meant to write the name of this down. It's too many syllables to remember. But there's a whole new psychological condition that describes people that are so committed to eating healthily that they have this phobia about eating anything that's not organic and that's not, and and they, they go so far that they literally, people break out in hives because they're so worried that they might eat something that is not going to help them. So... So there's that end. And then there's the whole other side of alcohol being used as just an end in itself. That the activity, instead of let's get together and talk and enjoy being together, the activity is now let's go get wasted. And the goal of being together is to get totally drunk. And um, that is a new development. I mean, there have always been people that done that, but there were certainly not people that were... Um, educated or people who are Christians, it was something that society really looked down on. But now, if you want to, if you've never been on King Street on a Friday or Saturday around 1.30 in the morning, I would just encourage you to do that. Um, not necessarily to, like, get in and partake of all of it, but just sort of observe because it is, it's eye-opening. Um, And then, fourthly, cultivate equanimity and good humor, especially in stressful situations. And this is sort of what Jeff has been talking about with our response to the coronavirus, that Christians are people who shouldn't be freaked out like the whole rest of our culture is about this. Um, Even if there is something that's serious, you can still have equanimity and good humor because you belong to a different kingdom. And then lastly, practice generosity in your actions and with your possessions. All right, so we're going to move into letter 18, which is on love, lust, marriage, all sorts of things. We could spend weeks on this letter, but we're going to do a very quick flyby on it. So, my dear Wormwood, even under Slubgob, Slubgob is one of the um, leaders of the Tempters Training College. Even under Slubgob, you must have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation. And since for us spirits, this whole subject is one of considerable tedium, though necessary as part of our training, I will pass it over. But on the larger issues involved, I think you have a good deal to learn. The enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma, either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father, that's our father below, first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, for the last few centuries, we have been closing as a way of escape. We have done this through the poets and novelists, by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage, that marriage can and ought to render this excitement 
permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that oneself is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. And just a little aside here. Remember, that is the worldview that Satan is trying to put on the world, and we have gotten there. Has put on, yes. Yes. (laughs) To be means to be in competition. That's what most people believe and experience, but that is not the design of God's kingdom. All right, now the enemy's philosophy is nothing more or less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another. This impossibility he calls love. And the same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does and even all he is or claims to be. Thus, he is not content even himself to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one, in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. At the other end of the scale, he introduces into matter that obscene invention, the organism, in which the parts are perverted from their natural destiny of competition and made to cooperate. His real motive for fixing on sex as the method of reproduction among humans is only too apparent from the use he has made of it. Sex might have been, from our point of view, quite innocent. It might have been merely one more mode in which a stronger self preyed upon a weaker, as it is indeed among the spiders, where the bride concludes her nuptials by eating her groom. (laughs) But in the humans, the enemy has gratuitously associated affection between the parties with sexual desire. He has also made the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse For the members are more distinct, yet also united in a more conscious and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Now comes the joke. The enemy described a married couple as one flesh. He did not say a happily married couple or a couple who married because they were in love. But you can make the humans ignore that. You can also make them forget that the man they call Paul did not confine it to married couples. Mere copulation for him makes one flesh. You can thus get the humans to accept as as rhetorical eulogies of being in love what were in fact plain descriptions of the real significance of sexual intercourse. 
The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman, there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. From the true statement that this transcendental relation was intended to produce, and if obediently entered into, too often will produce affection and the family, humans can be made to infer the false belief that the blend of affection, fear, and desire, which they call being in love, is the only thing that makes marriage either happy or holy. The error is easy to produce because being in love does very often in Western Europe precede marriages which are made in obedience to the enemy's designs, that is, with the intention of fidelity, fertility, and goodwill, just as religious emotion very often, but not always, attends conversion. In other words, the humans are to be encouraged to regard as the basis for marriage a highly colored and distorted version of something the enemy really promises as its result. Two advantages follow. In the first place, humans who have not the gift of continence can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. And thanks to us, the idea of marrying with any other motive seems to them low and cynical. Yes, they think that. They regard the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help, for the preservation of chastity, and for the transmission of life as something lower than a storm of emotion. Don't neglect to make your man think the marriage service very offensive. In the second place, any sexual infatuation, whatever, so long as it intends marriage, will be regarded as love. And love will be held to excuse a man from all the guilt and to protect him from all the consequences if marrying a heathen, a fool, or a wanton. But more of this in my next, your affectionate uncle, Scrute. So there is a lot in here. So we're just going to, we're going to skim the surface of some important points. So these are things that if you do them will annoy the heck out of the devil because they will frustrate his schemes. So the first thing is to practice the countercultural scriptural standard of complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. And this, obviously, is not where our culture is right now. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And there are plenty of scripture verses about this. And the thing that is so sad here is the clear witness of scripture is unanimous on this. There's no doubt about what the scriptures teach about this. But even the church, in a lot of places, has waffled away from this understanding. And the other thing that has happened is that sexual sin somehow, in some places, gets loaded up as the worst sin of all, which is also not scriptural. Usually sexual sin is in the same list with gluttony, gossip, and complaining. So it's not... um, (laughs) something that we can just look down our noses at if that's not our particular temptation. But the important thing here is Lewis makes it very clear that part of Satan's goal is to undermine the standard. So we've watched that 
happen. Um, but we can still stand up for that. And part of the reason for this that's so important is that this way of living protects people's hearts and emotions. And I cannot tell you the number of people that I've talked with in counseling who have bought the lie that the world has sold them and lived lives doing what the world says brings pleasure and happiness, and then they are just burdened with this guilt and shame and all sorts of other things that um, you don't ever hear about um, when the world is trying to tempt you away. The second thing, adopt an other-focused paradigm of love that refuses to act as if love is a zero-sum game. I'm going to read that again. Adopt an other-focused paradigm of love that refuses to act as if love is a zero-sum game. I think this is one of the most important parts of this letter, and it's not necessarily the easiest to understand, but it's in that section where Screwtape is talking about how the enemy, God, is wanting us, or God wants people who are following him to understand that the more that you love, the more that there is. That love brings more love. That when you include more people, when you serve other people, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And Screwtape says the wisdom of hell is that the only way everything needs its own space and to try to include or to bring anyone else in the only reason you would want to do that is to consume them because you're in a competition. It is not something where we can all coexist and love each other and actually flourish in that kind of environment. Um, what Screwtape is saying is that we need to be individuals, we need to not be linked with anyone else, and that we're all in competition. It sort of sounds like economics class that we're in competition for limited resources. Um, and so you better get what you can get before somebody else gets it. Um, and that, yes, and that, that is very much what Screwtape's view about relationships is. And then he gets on God about the Trinity. And, you know, he can't content himself with just being one. He has to be three in one and have this relationship going on in there and how disgusting is that um, but that is the model for us and the unfortunate thing is that again our culture has bought into the idea that to be is impossible that what you have to do is be in competition everything that you do is a competition and you'd better get it or get at it before somebody else does or you're going to miss out and this beautiful scripture from Romans 12. Romans 12 is such a great chapter to meditate on if you are looking for something. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And if you go a little bit further down, you will see weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, 
all of this, look how proactive that is and how incredibly other-focused it is. Outdo one another in showing honor. That is the opposite of narcissism. It is outdoing that there's some competition, but this is the good kind of competition about how much you can love on, um, bring other people in, seek to meet other people's needs, and the joy that comes with that. And I also love this little phrase, do not be slothful in zeal. Zeal is another one of those big, strong words that we don't use very often. But zeal is incredible enthusiasm. And so what this is saying is don't be slothful in incredible enthusiasm. It means let it go. You know, take the governor off the speed pedal and uh, be zealous about the zeal that God puts in your heart. And this zeal is for God's kingdom and for those who are in it. That we are, That is the way we are to be loving each other. And that is so far away from this idea of the zero-sum game that there's only enough pie for, you know, you've got to get your piece and get a big piece because if you wait for everybody else, there's not going to be anything left for you. And that is what Satan wants us to believe. And even as Christians, this creeps in to our thinking. And we don't realize it. And so we have to be very proactive about this is what the, the whole paradigm idea is. And the, um, I'm going to give a little rabbit trail here for a minute. Uh, paradigm shift is something that was really big in management consulting in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, and the example that was always used um, was the one about Swiss watchmakers. And so, you know, Swiss watches, very highly regarded, centuries of tradition, and these men making these very, it was almost all men in that industry at the time, making these very precise instruments, and you open up the watch, and there are all these little tiny wheels and cogs, and it's quite beautiful, and they were really expensive. And while these watchmakers were dominating the world market, some of their market research people came to them and said, you'd better watch out because Sanyo, this Japanese company, is starting to make something called a digital watch. And the people in Switzerland were like, well, that's stupid. Do whatever want that when they could have this. And so they kept making what they had always made and then watched Sanyo and some other companies come in and completely steal their market share. And the reason for that is there had been a paradigm shift that they were not aware of that altered reality. And so that's part of what we need. We need a paradigm shift, not about watches, uh, but about the way that we regard love and relationships because it's so easy to start thinking it's a zero-sum game instead of believing that God is going to redeem the time and bring fruit out of our choosing to outdo um, and showing honor to others. And then thirdly, resist the cultural understanding that believes that feelings of being in love are the foundation of marriage. Now let me give a quick little disclaimer here. There is nothing wrong with feelings of being in love. Amen. And you should feel those feelings sometimes. 
But that is not the basis of marriage. If you think that's the basis of marriage, the problem becomes that you end up, when those feelings aren't there anymore, the marriage becomes disposable. And it's incredible that Lewis is writing this in the 1940s. It's just amazing because he anticipates exactly what was going to happen. In the 1940s, divorce was still pretty rare. Um, Serial marriage was rare. Um, Living together with someone, um, as we used to say, without benefit of clergy, um, (laughs) that was rare too. But all of those things are now normal. They are normal. And part of the idea is that um, if you don't feel like you're in love anymore, then you can trade in for a new model. And there's so many just awful pop songs about this. Um, hooked on a feeling. I'm high on believing. And then you know, meatloaf, two out of three, eight bad. Um, there's just, you know, there's so many, or you've lost that loving feeling, so I'm going to ditch you. Um, Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the problem with this is that when you begin to have that sense that this relationship of marriage is based on feelings instead of commitment, um, you are in deep, deep, deep trouble. And that's why there's that line in there um, where he says, make sure that they are very uncomfortable with the marriage liturgy. So the marriage liturgy, um, oh, wow, I've got to hurry up. Okay, um, the marriage liturgy is really important. And it's interesting because it has its roots way, way, way back um, in Sarum and earlier than that. Um, the Anglican marriage rite is beautiful and has been in use for well over a 1,000 years in some form or another. But part of what happens in that marriage rite is there is very little talk about feelings of being in love. It is a series of commitments that you are making. And it is the same thing that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's also something we see really all through Scripture because Jesus commands us to love. And you can't command somebody to have a feeling. You can command somebody to do an action, but you cannot command a feeling. And just look at what 1 Corinthians 13 says. We've heard this so many times that we don't hear it anymore. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that passage goes on and on, and each descriptor is an action and a commitment. And that is what the whole marriage ceremony is about. And that's why it says in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, all of those kinds of things. It doesn't say anything until I'm not feeling it anymore. That is not part of the marriage ceremony. But the problem in our culture is that we use being in love when we get to the state where we feel like we're in love, 
then that automatically gives permission for sexual intimacy regardless of marriage. And then when we aren't feeling in love anymore, then we just drop that relationship and move on to the next one, which is really um, number four. Uphold the virtue of chastity rather than using feelings of being in love as an excuse for serial promiscuity. And the interesting thing is, again, if you look in Christian history, people used to actually talk about chastity. I'm not going to ask you the last time you heard anyone talk about chastity, (laughs) but it's not something that comes up very much. Um, One of the great things that uh, Lewis and the Inklings did is Charles Williams, who was one of the uh, most mesmerizing lecturers among the Inklings at Oxford, gave a series of lectures on chastity. (laughs) And the crazy thing is it was standing room only with college students. And sort of hard to imagine that today. But, uh, you know, this idea that chastity is a virtue. I was talking with somebody the other day um, who is a student, and he was telling me, that all of the people on the, he was on a particular sports team, that the analogous girls sports team was making fun of them because these guys were still virgins. And, you know, you just think that is just so messed up. Um, again, Second Timothy and First Corinthians. So flee from sexual immorality. Again, flee That's that big, strong word, get out like the house is on fire. (laughs) Flee from sexual immorality. Any other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now flee, there's that word again, from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We talked about this verse a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago, but the thing that's so important here is that where we get this wrong a lot of times is we understand the flee part. So we were hopefully pretty good about fleeing, but we leave out the next part. And the next part is the really important part that makes the fleeing work, which is pursue. And pursue is a big, strong word. That's like hunt, like hunting the thing that you really want to get so you can eat it. Um, So pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, and you're not pursuing that alone, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So your orientation is toward pursuing those things, and that's part of what enables you to have the power and the courage and the fellowship around you to be able to flee. And then lastly and most importantly, cultivate and practice a biblical understanding of love. Scripture is full of things about love. Jesus talked about love so much. And one of the things that he said that is so heartbreaking is he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And of course, we've talked about the survey. Um, The first word that comes to mind for Christians (coughs) is judgmental. And the second one is hypocritical. And The interesting thing is if you read secular documents, and John Dixon is really good on this um, because he's done so much research about it, but when you read secular documents from the first couple of centuries about Christians, one of the things that is a common thread through them 
is the Roman officials commenting on how the Christians loved one another, how they loved one another, took care of each other in radical ways, that they were not slothful in zeal. They were proactively loving and serving each other in a way that was so breathtaking that even these government leaders who were pagans were moved by it. And we need to recapture that. And this John 15, John 13, 14, 15, 16, um, that's another great place to meditate during Lent. That's Jesus' last supper discourse. So probably right before Jesus is going to be crucified, he is talking about the things that are most on his heart. And we, we hear snippets of this in church, but it really is powerful if you start at the beginning of chapter 13 and read right through 16 and then Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 for his disciples. But this is just a little bit of it. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is an astounding passage. And if we can ever get a hold of the truth that's just in this little snippet, it will turn your life upside down. So look at what Jesus says here, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm just going to assume that you would like for your joy to be full. You would probably not choose misery and despair as your daily condition. But Jesus tells us that that joy is directly dependent on this idea of love. And the sequence here is so interesting. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The way that the Father loves Jesus is the way that Jesus poured out love to his disciples. And he modeled that Father's love. And then he tells them to abide, to live, to make their home and that love. Abide is another big, strong word that we don't use a lot, but it really means make your home in. Make your home in that love. And then he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And this shows us sort of the purpose of the law, that it's not for us to earn righteousness or to avoid being punished, but that when we, we live within the confines of, of what God has created us for, we experience the fullness of this love. And then Jesus tells us that our joy will be full and that his joy will be in us and that we are to love one another the same way that Jesus loved us. That self-sacrificing love 
that love that is the model of the Father's love for Jesus, that love that is the core and the fountain that is at the middle of the Trinity that gives life and beauty to the whole universe, all of that is to be overflowing into our relationships with one another. And then, of course, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and that is what he does the very next day. So it is profound. And when you take all of this together and look at the beautiful vision that that depicts and then look how sadly far away from that our culture is. And we see this culture where people are literally dying of loneliness and despair. And we have this. We're Sorry, I don't want to like scare you, but we're accountable for this. We should be sharing this. This is good news to people who don't know it, who are desperate for love, and again, like the country song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. So I would commend to you to contemplate this and think about how God might be calling you um, to refresh your zeal, shall we say, in this area. And let's close with saying this uh, little part together. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the source and giver and author of all love. Love that is beautiful and full and joyous. Lord, we confess to you that we so often choose to live an impoverished way, listening to what the world says, rather than abiding in your love. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn what it means to abide there, to experience your love for us, to receive that and to share it with others, that we might love one another as Jesus loved us, and that as the world looks on, they might look at us and say, see how those Christians love one another. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.